That's, that's such a good word. I'm so appreciative um, of the Lord's work through Nathan and uh, just the ministry of uh, salt and light. And it's, he's so true. When you minister and when you meet needs with love, um, when you give of yourself financially and emotionally and your time and your abilities selflessly so that we can be a blessing to those in our lives, when, when, when all of this happens, eventually your motives are going to be tested. Why you do what you do will be tested. And so it goes back. Ministry does that. Ministry, ministry reveals our idols. <laughs> ministry gets us asking questions like, why are we serving? Why are we giving? Why are we sharing? Why are we going all in? And the most sustainable answer, the most sustainable answer is love. Love, love. Love for God, love for people. And so I want us to explore how we can stand firm in that love here this morning. And to do that, I'd like for us to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are concluding a series over Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And, and how we can stand firm in the love of Christ. You'll find 2 Thessalonians 3 on page 990 of your church Bibles If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take uh, the copy that's in the pouch in front of you, put your name in it, and receive it as a gift from our church family. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
This is God's word. Once upon a time, there was a father whose daughter came to him and said, Daddy, I have met the man I want to marry. And I want you to meet him. And so he said, that's fine, sweetheart. So the young man came over to the house and met in the father's den, that grand den. Father says, so you want to marry my daughter? Yes, sir. The father says, wonderful. Now tell me, do you have a job? No, sir, I don't, he said. But I believe God will provide. God will provide. Father said, okay. Would you have any savings? Do you have like an emergency fund? Do you have any money, anything like that at all? He said, no, sir, I don't. Because I believe, sir, God will provide. Okay. Well, do you have... Do you have Do you have any ambitions? Do you have any vision? Do you have any vocational dreams that you'd really like to pursue? And he said, no, sir, because I believe, help me out, God will provide. And the father said, all right, well, um, this has been informative. Thank you. Thank you for coming by and let me show you the door. And they say goodbye. Dad closes the front door. The wife says, well, how'd it go? And the dad says, well, uh, it's, it, you know, this kind of bad news, good news thing. She said, really? Well, wh- wh- what's the bad news is? Well, the bad news is he has no money, no plans, no job, no ambitions whatsoever. Oh. And there's good news? He says, yes, there is good news. He thinks I'm God. I wish I could tell you that that was fiction, but I mean, from your giggles, you know. You know, sometimes family ties can blur what love looks like, right? And, and this story, which is from uh, a book I commend to you, John Townsend and Henry Cloud, the title of the book, Boundaries. Boundaries. The story kind of introduces this, this prickly topic of boundaries. You know, you get into a situation with people that you love and, you know, they have a need. And especially, you know, when you're your family and there's a fine line, isn't there, between helping versus enabling and, and meeting a need versus prolonging a dysfunctional situation. And it just becomes hard to say No. And, you know, you love them, and you want to help them succeed. And at the same time, it's, you know, it, it can sometimes, you know, be easy to allow others to tell you how they want you to help them best. And it's just gooey. And uh, most of the time, it has to do with money. It can involve other possessions or, you know, housing or and you want to help, but you just, you know, and sometimes it's just, a, it's just a line of scrimmage, audible call of wisdom. And I really believe that the Lord has a sense of humor. 
because I've been preparing this thing on boundaries uh, all week, and then I don't know where you were at 10 o'clock last night with the rain and everything. I was in my son's basement, uh, kind of helping get water out of the basement. He had about an inch and a half of water in his basement, and you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just. I don't know. I mean, I, the Lord must be laughing. Whatever I'm thinking, what, what am I doing here? I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here or not. Help me. Am I helping? Am I enabling? And part of the deal is, is that my son is he's on vacation. And he's like he's out of the country. Right. Because when we were 25, we went on vacation out of the country. That's what you could do on a youth minister's salary back then. But my son, and you know, they're not coming back then. So here I am kind of helping to bail water and everything. And I'm going, Lord, am I supposed to be here? My wife thinks I'm supposed to be here. So, you know, maybe that's the will, right? And so it's just gooey. It's just gooey. And we want to help because we love and we don't want to enable. And, and the same thing can happen in the church family. Exact same thing can happen. And it can even be trickier. Because it seems like that the church community, uh, just there's just something about the DNA in a church community that, that attracts people who think that we must be God. And that the church community is to always be available and always present and should always provide for anyone who asks for anything 24-7. And that the church community is to be a place where you can never say no to someone. And I wonder how many of us have lost a little bit of our lives. I wonder how many of us over the last couple of months, have lost a, lost a little bit of money or lost a little bit of time or lost a little bit of, of energy because of a no problem. A no problem. Just had a hard time saying no to people that you love, you know. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the apostle Paul really talks about boundaries. He encourages the church family to stand firm in love by setting boundaries, by helping them to know when to say yes and when to say no. And, and he offers wisdom so that the church can help people who truly need help. And I want us to consider Paul's words and listen to Paul's words. I want us to learn, well, what was their situation? What was going on in their world that led Paul to give commands about boundaries, and then how does that inform our world? How does that apply to our lives with the boundaries that we need to set? So let's consider their world, and then let's consider ours. First, their world. What was the situation? Here it was in a sentence. I can say it in a sentence. Some in the church community were sponging off others, period, they were sponging off others. They were, they were capable of working for a living to support themselves, and they chose not to. Now, why? What was that all about? Well, in my studies this week, I found two major reasons that surfaced. Uh, one had to do with the teaching of the return of Christ, the appearing of Christ. Evidently, some thought that the appearing of Christ was so close, why should we go back to work if the king is returning? 
Or some had erroneously thought that the king had already returned. Let's just go out, quit our jobs, don't worry about it, and spread the word. And Paul's already said, no, he's not returned. You'll know it when he does. So one of these reasons had to do with the return of Christ. But, but I think there's another reason that was more cultural, uh, more a part of their environment. It had to do with the patron-client culture in first century Rome. I'll say it again. The patron-client culture in first century Rome. Now, church family, if I'm going to lose you, I'm going to lose you right here. Okay? Let me explain what I mean by patron-client culture in first century Rome. Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. Several years ago, our government said that credit is the grease that lubricates our economy. Okay? Credit is the grease that lubricates our economy. All right? Okay? Well, in the Roman Empire, the patron-client relationship was the grease that lubricated their economy. Okay? 2,000 years ago, if you were involved in the economic life of the Roman Empire, you were either a patron or a client. You were either a giver, a benefactor, Or you were a receiver, a beneficiary. You were either a contributor or you were a consumer, a patron or a client, or both. You could be both. So, for instance, if someone was in the lower class, they might approach a member of the upper class for a favor, maybe a job recommendation or some sort of advancement. And so this potential patron would size up this client, and if the patron agreed, there would, he would provide the favor, but there would be this unspoken understanding that at some point in time, the patron would expect payback from the client. You see, it was, there was giving and receiving. It was kind of a quid pro quo, a this for that. So, for instance... There might be a young, budding author who would approach a Roman senator to see if that Roman senator could pull some strings and recommend the author's book to a publisher. Well, the Roman senator would do that with the understanding that at a later date, the author would return the favor by writing a flattering biography of the senator. See how that worked? It was about giving and receiving. Now multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of relationships. And that's how the Roman economy worked. This this act of benefiting others set up this chain of obligations, and the receiver was obligated to give gratitude to the patron. and And then, listen, even so, when a patron would give a favor to a client, the client would receive the favor... And then, this is so interesting, because we would never think about this, okay? So I'm going to give you something to think about. So the patron would, would grant a favor to the client, the client would receive it, and then the client would in return give an act of gratitude to the patron, and the patron would receive it, which would then obligate the patron to return another favor to the client. Wild. But that's how it worked. We look at that like saying, what? That's just how life worked. That was just, just like breathing. That's how it worked. The patron-client relationship. And so evidently, what's going on here 
is there are some clients in the church who were so well taken care of by their patron that they didn't see the need to work. And so they would come to the church gathering, which was in a home context, not in a gathering room like this. A home context, and of course there would be meals. The time of worship was a time of communion and singing and teaching and preaching. And then there, there would be this love feast, this celebration, this meal. There would be eating and drinking. And, and some of those clients would come and they would... They would eat and they would drink and they would take and take and take, but they didn't give, they didn't share. They just, they just kind of splashed all over everybody else, their particular uh, 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 patron-client relationship. And, and it was, you know, they were, they were not community contributors. They were community consumers. And the problem was that what they were consuming could have been allocated to those who were truly in need. And this was a small problem, which Paul addressed in a milder way in 1 Thessalonians, but but it didn't get corrected. So Paul commanded the church community to set boundaries with those who were walking in idleness. Verse 6, now we command you, he throws the trump card down. We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So, so stay away from those who are, he uses the phrase, walking in idleness. Walking. Now we use the word idle like you're lazy. And that's, there's truth to that here in that word. And yet it's, there, more deeply the word idle means to be unruly, to be undisciplined, to be disorderly. Literally, it means to walk out of step. So it might describe someone who is lazy at doing, uh, lazy at doing what's supposed to be significant, or it might mean someone who is very busy at doing the insignificant. So either not doing what is important or obsessed with doing the unimportant. And Paul says, this has to stop. And he uses himself as an example. He says, you know how we lived. You know when we were with you, we supported ourselves. You know, I got a job as a leather worker. I I joined a tent making association. And I crafted leather for market. And and I did this so that I would not have to enter into the the, the client-patron relationship, verses 7 and 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul supported himself as an example to the church, as a better paradigm than the patron-client paradigm. And he reminded them, he reminds them here that even though he had the right to receive financial support for preaching the gospel, he waived it in order to be an example. Because he didn't want money or patronage to obstruct the truth and power of the gospel. So Paul just takes that issue off the table by supporting himself. Verses 9 and 10. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul waived that right that he had. But evidently, some were demanding the right, even though they were fully capable of supporting themselves. Paul says this must stop. And I want this letter read publicly so that they know it comes from me. Verse 17. 
I, Paul. So it's like Paul takes the pen out of the scribe's hand and says, give me that. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. There. That's his signature. I want it read. And then he has this little play on words. You know, some of you aren't busy. You're busy bodies. Verse 11. We hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. So get to work. No work, no eat. Straightforward. Stop mooching off the charity of others when you, when you are fully capable of supporting yourself. Stop fussing. Stop idling. Stop sponging. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. At the same time, Paul, you know, does not want the church community to become chintzy or stingy or miserly. You know, he's not telling the church to close the food pantry or shut down the benevolence ministry. He's urging them to balance mercy and justice. And so he, he reminds them, I, you know, I want you to keep on helping and serving and giving to those who are truly in need. And, and whatever you do, make sure it's done in the context of family love, verses 13, 14, and 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So, so you know, we're not closing down the benevolence ministry. Don't, don't, just, you know, we need to exercise wisdom. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. But then you see how he qualifies this. this. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay? You want to stand firm in love? You want to have sustainable love? Love that, that is a marathon love? You need to set boundaries. You need to set boundaries. Setting boundaries will help us stand firm in love. There it is. Setting boundaries will help us stand firm in love. Now let's talk about our world. I mentioned John Townsend and Henry Cloud's book, Boundaries. Here's what they have to say about boundaries. Boundaries define us. Boundaries identify what is me and what is not me. Boundaries clarify where I end and where you begin. Boundaries state what our responsibility is and what is beyond our responsibility. So the conversation about boundaries has to do with responsibilities. We're not talking about racial boundaries. We're not talking about national boundaries. We're, We're talking about responsibility boundaries. Boundaries help us know what is our job and what isn't. And workers who take on Duties continually that are not theirs will eventually burn out. It takes wisdom to know what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing because we can't do everything. Just as homeowners set physical property lines around their land, we need to set mental and physical and emotional and spiritual boundaries, responsibility boundaries for our lives to help us distinguish what is ours and what isn't. Boundaries can help us determine the difference between a boulder and a backpack. Tuck that away in your mind for just a minute. I'll get back to that. So what's the boundary here in 2 Thessalonians 3? Paul says, if you want to eat, 
Got to work, which is to say the house church met. wasn't just a time of singing and worship and preaching and communion. There was a meal involved. It was about community and sharing. And Paul says, if you want to be a part of this community of love and fellowship, then you've got to be more than merely a consumer, especially when you have the capability and ability to be a contributor. I want you to step up. Question. To whom does Paul address in these verses? Who's he specifically talking to? Is he talking to the idlers? Not really. Not really. Oh, he vaguely refers to those who are walking in idleness in verse 12, but primarily he's talking to the congregation at large. He's urging the congregation at large to do what needs to be done to set the boundaries. The congregation at large was allowing an intolerable situation to exist, and Paul writes to move them to take a very unpleasant action. Oh, wouldn't it be great if Paul had specified the idlers? I mean, if he had just included their names and their social security numbers, that would be wonderful. Why didn't he do that? Well, you know, the reason why they're not specifically addressed is that they don't get it, and they're not going to get it. If they were responsible enough to get it, they probably wouldn't need to be talked to in the first place. And so since they don't get it, then the more mature ones in the church community are going to have to step up. And define the boundaries. John Townsend, in their book, tells about a counseling scenario he had with parents. Parents of a 25-year-old. He writes, the parents of a 25-year-old came to see me with a very common request. They wanted me to fix their son. (laughs) John Townsend said, well... Where is your son? I mean, how come he's not here? You're here. There, he's not. How come? You, well, he didn't want to come. Oh, really? Why? Well, he doesn't think he has a problem. John Townsend said, to their surprise, well, maybe he's right. Tell me about him. And the parents proceeded to say how they had provided uh, money and resources for school so that their son would not have to work and and after doing that, their son used the time and the money for his social life, which, in drug, which involved drug and alcohol abuse. He stopped going to classes. And when he flunked out, they were more than happy to do everything they could to get him into another school where it might be a better fit. After they told the story, John Townsend looked at him and said, You know what? I think you're right. He doesn't have any problems. What? They said. Your son doesn't have any problems. You, however, do. See, he can pretty much do whatever he wants. No problem. And you pay, and you fret, and you worry, and you plan, and you exert energy to keep him going. I mean, he doesn't have a problem because you've taken all his problems from him. Those things should be his problem. But as it now stands, they're yours. Then he asked this. He said to them, Would you like for me to help you help him have some problems? The father, the father said, well, what do you mean? Townsend said, well, 
I think that the solution to this problem would be for you to clarify some boundaries so that his actions cause him problems and not you. To which the father said, well, isn't that a bit cruel just to stop helping like that? And John Townsend said, has helping him helped? Setting boundaries will help you stand firm in love. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found myself in kind of a three-stage drama when it comes to dealing with boundaries and dealing with those who walk in idleness. Um, And here is... Act one of this drama. Act one is titled Fear. Fear. Total fear. Immobilizing fear. Fear of confrontation. Fear of having that difficult talk. Fear of how the person's going to respond. Are they going to respond in anger? Are they going to respond in guilt? Are they going to respond by saying, Well, you said you were a Christian. You know, you said you love Jesus. You know, fear of, of, fear of the person leaving and going to another church. Now, I don't know about you, but, I mean, act one for me is just, it's, it's just painful. It's just, it's fear. And, 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 and I put it off. There, I said it. I procrastinate. Because it's just no fun. Until the threshold of pain is such that something has to happen. And that's when we go to act two of this drama. And act two is titled pushing through the fear. Act two is feeling the pain. Act two is having the difficult conversation. And, and the, the, the most difficult part of the difficult conversation for me is like the first seven minutes. Right? Just the first seven minutes. The pain of having to set that boundary and the the pain of lovingly but firmly telling the person, no, no, I'm sorry, no. Stage two. And then stage three or act three of this drama is is this. (laughs) Act three is titled (sighs) Peace. Really, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you see, after I set the boundary and the pain is gone and the problem has been resolved as far as it depends on me and the peace has overwhelmed my spirit, then I wonder why I waited so long to set the boundary in the first place. Hmm? Setting boundaries will help you stand firm in love. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, you're telling me to set boundaries, but I need some wisdom on knowing just, you know, when to help and when not to. That's a fair question. So, Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, provide wisdom that we need on this issue. Galatians 6, 2 through 5, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. 
For each will have to bear his own load. There's the wisdom. Paul talks about burdens and loads. Bear one another's burdens, verse 2. Verse 5, each one's going to have to bear his own load. Huh. What's the difference? Burdens, verse 2. A burden is something impossible to carry. You just cannot carry it by yourself. You can't. It's, it's like a boulder. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's physical illness or disability. Maybe it's your past. You can't do this alone. It's too heavy to lift alone. It's a burden. Paul says you need to help one another in that case. You need to help one another. A load. A load in verse 5 literally is the word knapsack or backpack. It's your back. It's something that you are capable of carrying. Something you're supposed to carry yourself. God expects us to deal with our own feelings and our own attitudes and our own behaviors. God expects us to fulfill our responsibilities, even though it takes effort. So the question about boundaries is really a question, can, can, can they carry this themselves? Can they carry this themselves? And problems happen when people act as if their boulders are daily loads and refuse help or as if their daily loads are boulders that they shouldn't have to carry. And the results of these two instances are either perpetual pain or irresponsibility. Setting boundaries will help you stand firm in love. God, I need wisdom to know whether this is a boulder or whether this is a backpack. And, and often, you know, it's just line of scrimmage wisdom. You know, it's point blank. And who does that perfectly? Well, nobody. Nobody. So, so we continue to plead. Plead for wisdom. Give me discernment. Setting boundaries will help you stand firm in love. Um, I had a conversation with uh, someone this week about this chapter. And after I explained the situation in the Thessalonian church, the person said, well, Randy, did they listen to what Paul had to say? And I said, that's such a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, we're here. <laughs> so something happened. But while that's a great question, it really leads to an even better question, which is this. Do we listen? Are we going to listen? Are we going to listen to the wisdom in this chapter? Are we? So what is your backpack? What is your backpack? What is, what is your gear that you know you need to carry, that no one else can carry for you? What is your responsibility? What is that? And 
what are the boulders that you can't possibly carry? What are are you trying to carry that you can't, that you shouldn't? And why aren't you letting others help you? What is it? What, What hurt is it? What grief is it? Is it your past? Is it your past? Listen, listen. Your past has no jurisdiction in the kingdom of God. Do you know how you'll know whether or not you've listened? Do you know how you know? Verse 16. Peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Paul says, I want you to have peace about this. I want you to, I want you to walk. I want you to stand firm in the peace of God. Whether you carry your own backpack and command others to do so, or whether you help with the boulders. And all of this, all of this has been brought about by the grace of Jesus Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so it's no wonder that Paul concludes this letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's by grace that Jesus carried what we could not carry. And it is by grace that he gives us the backpack he wants us to carry for his glory and the good of his people. It's by grace. So stand firm. Stand firm in suffering, chapter 1. Stand firm in truth, chapter 2. Stand firm in love, chapter 3. Church family, stand firm.